0: Thank you for joining us for the midweek Bible study with Dr. David Wilson. Now let's join Dr. Wilson for a more in-depth study of the Word of God. Second Thessalonians chapter 3. I want to begin reading the first five verses. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you, Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Last week we talked about how we personally remain unshakable in this society that always is changing around us. And then Paul moves basically to encourage the Thessalonians to remain an unshakable church. A church that will stand. You know, churches have a shelf life, believe it or not. Have you ever thought about that? A lot of the churches that Paul, well, all the churches that Paul started aren't in existence today. They had a shelf life. Every church has a shelf life. I hope our church has a long shelf life, long past any of us. One man said he found the perfect church. It had four services. One service was for those who were new in the faith. Another service was for those who liked traditional worship. Another service was for for those who lost their faith and were wanting to get it back. And the fourth service was for those who had bad experiences in church and were complaining about it. And they named the four services. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. How can we remain an unshakable church? What I mean by that is a church that will persevere, not compromise, remain steadfast no matter what happens. Well, I think there are some truths here that'll help us understand and Paul is writing to the Thessalonians who were undergoing severe times. And, He's, he's writing them, he said, now here's what I, I'm, I'm asking of you and, and telling you what you need to do. First of all, an unshakable church prays for the leadership. You'll notice Paul, who was a giant among men and one mightily used by God. I mean, when you think of Paul, he's up at the top level. Next, he's not next to Jesus. But as far as being used in the New Testament, you don't think of anybody any." more famous or more mighty than Paul himself, and God used him in so many ways, and yet Paul always is asking for prayer. Please pray for me, he says. Pray that that I'll have the strength, and the theme of this passage teaches us that as mighty as Paul was, it's not a sign of weakness when you ask somebody to pray for you. It's a mark of dependence. And the verb tense is a present tense, which means please continually pray for me. That's what he's saying. And we need to pray for the leadership of our church. I am so thankful for those of you who indicate and tell me, you've been praying for me. I'm not the only leader of the church. I met this week with our pastors and I will tell you, we have a great, a great team that works together. We have a lot of great times together, but we, we've got a team that, that's, you know, the old term, it's hitting on all cylinders right now. I mean, they are doing great. A lot of these new guys, these young guys, you may not know very well, but I'm here to tell you they're solid. They're solid young men. But I want to tell you something, Church. Satan gets a foothold in this church. You know where he's going to start? He's going to start with the leadership. And we need to pray for the leadership. Pray for your Sunday school teacher. Pray for the deacons. Pray for the the people who are leading other people. The average church member does not realize how much a preacher or pastor of the gospel is dependent upon the prayers of God's people. Because whenever an evangelist or a Bible teacher attempts to expound the word of God, he's working against some things. First of all, he's contending against the possible failure of those to hear what he's trying to say. And he's also contending against the unseen powers of darkness. He's engaging in a spiritual war. All the powers of hell are against him. There's a battle going on spiritually. I I see some former pastors in here, several retired pastors, retarded pastors now. (laughs) Just kidding. I can tell you, they would probably stand and say that you don't sleep very well on Saturday night. And I don't think that's by accident. I think the more tired he can make you on Sunday, the more or less effective. So you wake up for, and weird things happen on Saturday night sometime. But he said, pray, pray for the leadership, pray for them. And there's a couple of things in specific to pray for. He said, first, pray for the proclamation of God's word that the word of the Lord may run swiftly. There's an article by... It was actually in a book by Stephen Olford, but it was an article written by Roger Johnson entitled, The Value of Expository Preaching and Teaching. And he said, all too often, the biblical passage read to the congregation resembles the national anthem played at a sporting event. It gets things started, but it's not referred to again during the lesson. And the authority behind preaching resides not in the preacher, but in the biblical text. There's an old, there was an old English magazine that carried a strong article on preaching the word. I want to read it to you. It's, just, it's a paragraph. It said, It is the word of God that effects good results in an assembly, not the voice of the preacher, nor his manner, nor his magnetism, nor his learning nor his skill in argumentation, but the word of the Lord makes men feel like doing the will of God. A discourse made up of history, poetry, philosophy, and science adorned by elegant quotations from classic authors may be a remarkable address, but it is not a gospel sermon. It may do some good, but it is not the power of God unto salvation. When a minister announces a text of Scripture at the beginning of his discourse for the sake of form or appearance, and then proceeds to address the people on secular subjects, never again referring to his text and making no further use of the Bible, he is certainly not preaching the Word." It's the word of God that awakens the sinner and shows him the way of salvation. It is the word of God that converts the soul of the penitent, edifies and sanctifies the believer and builds up the church. It is like a rain which comes down from heaven, waters the earth, and causes it to bring forth seed for the sower and bread for the eater so is the word of God. It shall not return unto him void, but it accomplishes that which he pleases and prospers in the things that where thereto he sent it. Preach the word, preach it in season and out of season. There seems to be a tendency, now I don't, you know, for some reason, I don't visit other churches. I just want y'all to know that. But I hear people telling me that that they go to churches and the word of God is not being proclaimed and that's just hard for me to understand and there seems to be a tendency today with people trying to be creative to the point that they come up with series that will they think will attract people but they don't ever come to the word of God. I, I want to tell you, Jesus attracts people and so does his word and so I'm not smart enough to do that other stuff. All I know to do is just to say, this is what the word of God says, let's look at it together. But but he, he said the proclamation of God's word, he mentions two other things about it. He says first of all that it may run. You'll notice in verse one that the word of God, that the word of the Lord may run swiftly. The language is, is really Interesting. It, it, it means to pray that God's word will keep running ahead. The word for run is the word treko, which we get our word trek. Uh, we're cheering for God's word to win and to be crowned as a champion. It's the present tense, which means we're praying that God's word will continue to progress swiftly. It will continue to run. It will continue to go out here because the word of God is what changes lives. Without the word of God, the hearts of men and women won't be changed. We get a glimpse of Paul's confidence here. We get a glimpse that his confidence is in God and in his precious word. In fact, he's—you know if you think about it, Paul spent a lot of his ministry in prison. And he discovered that God's word could not be kept behind bars. You can keep him in prison, but you can't keep God's word in prison. In fact, 2 Timothy 8, 9 says, this is my gospel for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal, but God's word is not chained. And those of you who like to jog, are you still like to jog? Here's a a beautiful word picture. The message of the gospel, he wants to go from city to city, from house to house, from one heart to another. His desire is for the gospel to have a free course, to go to the hearts of hurting people. Our prayer ought to be, Lord, let your word run through Lubbock. Lord, let your word run through the high schools. Let it run through the colleges. Turn your word loose. Let it leave Southcrest and go to the ends of the earth. And we're seeing God do some things like that. Only God can do that. And just as we think about how God's Word is spread around the world, think about how it started. after Jesus' resurrection there are 11 disciples. Next thing you know, there's 120 gathered in the upper or in the room where the Holy Spirit came, the day of Pentecost. there were 3,000 added to the church on the first day. And next thing you know, another 5,000, and God's word just spreads, and people's lives are changed changed, we sometimes hear about the spread of Islam and we should be concerned with it, but I want to tell you something. Christianity is still the fastest growing in the world. There are twice as many Christians in the world as Muslims. Muslims mainly grow through reproduction They have large families. Christianity grows through conversion. Hearts are changed. I've been told there are two billion people who confess Jesus as their Lord. There's seven billion people on the earth and you may be thinking, well, if Christianity's growing, why aren't we seeing it here? We get little glimpses of it, but you know, basically, America has has become a post-Christian nation. The growth of Christianity is occurring a lot in Africa and in Asia. And you can look at the beginning of the 20th century and what they're running now. You know there are more Christians, they claim there are more Christians in China than there are in America because of their population. But we need to pray that God's word will go, will, will, will go and penetrate the hearts of people that it may run. God, we want your word to run. God's given us a lot of opportunities here through the technology we have and the television and, and the, the fact that it's being broadcast. God's word is going out a lot of places. But Paul also said, I, not only will it run swiftly, but it will be recognized. It will be glorified just as it is with You, The message will continue. The verb here means to honor, to praise, to magnify. The idea is that God's message in himself will be honored among the people as they recognize what God's word is and who God is. They recognize it as God's word. But you know today, God's word's not honored among some people. The focus here is on the message rather than the messenger. Paul said, don't focus on me, you focus. I want the word of the Lord to run swiftly and it, for, it to be recognized and God glorified. And the, and the Thessalonians were an example. If you've got a, your Bible, go back to chapter, go back to 1 Thessalonians, which is just a couple of pages, and look at chapter one, verse five. Paul said, for our gospel did not come to you in word only but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake and you became followers of us and of the Lord having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. And then verse eight, for from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia but also in every place Your faith toward God has gone out so that we don't need to say anything. And then in in chapter two, verse 13, for this reason we also thank God without ceasing because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. And that's what Paul is saying. We want the word of God to be recognized and people to receive it. It's the kind of response Paul's praying that he and his team wanted to see wherever the gospel was proclaimed. I read something today that after a very long and boring sermon, the congregation sort of filed out of the church, not saying a word to the preacher. He'd preached a long time. Towards the end of the line was a thoughtful lady who always commented on the sermons, and she said, "Pastor, today your sermon reminded me of the peace and love of God." And he was thrilled. He said, ma'am, no one's ever said anything like that about my preaching. Tell me why you say that. And she said, because it endured forever. (laughs) But did you know, even if you've got a long-winded preacher, the word of God can penetrate the hearts of people. He prayed that God's word would be proclaimed, but then he also in his prayer, he said, not only would God's word be proclaimed, but he asked for the prayer for protection from the wicked. Pray that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked people for not all have faith. You know, when Paul went to Thessalonica, he hadn't been there long when a mob of angry Jews rioted and ran them out of town. I guess Paul, if you think about it, probably when he entered a town, didn't ask what kind of hotels they had. He probably checked out the jail because he was going to wind up there. He was beaten and stoned and shipwrecked. He wrote that he was in danger of losing his life every day. In Acts chapter 23, we read where there were 40 men who hated Paul so viciously that they took a vow that they weren't going to eat or drink until one of them had killed him. But the believers there were praying for him and God delivered him from that mob. Some people will do anything to stop the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, think of it this way not everyone's happy that you're a Christian. Not everyone's glad that your life has changed. Not everybody applauds you when you stand up for Jesus. Not everyone thinks it's a good idea to stand up for Jesus. Some people just want you to sit down and be quiet. Literally, the text reads that we we might be delivered from perverse New King James says uh, from unreasonable, but it's perverse and evil men. The presence of the article could mean that there's a specific group of people he's talking about. But more than likely, it's a more generic thought of class of men or f- that really form an obstacle to prevent the message of the gospel. That group of people that's out there that's not going to let the word get out, it sort of categorizes a group of people instead of particularizing somebody. It, it, what is this category of men like? He says, perverse, unreasonable. The word means out of place or strange or outrageous. It also means morally evil and improper. And then the word evil or wicked as the New King James translates it, is the word paneros. Now, there are two words for evil in the New Testament. Paneros, in the physical sense, means painful or serious or worthless, but ethically it means wicked and evil and base and vicious and degenerate. It refers to an active, malignant kind of evil, something that's spreading. Somebody's trying to force something on you. They're not only evil themselves, but they're gonna force it on you. Now there's another word, kakos, K-A-K-O-S, that means a person who's evil and they're gonna die an evil person, but panaros means they're gonna spread it. They're gonna stop you. They're gonna to try to prevent anything from happening. And, it's also, and he also says in verse three, from the evil one. Now we know who that is. Satan is called Ha Poneros, the evil one. It's a common name for him in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter five, Matthew six, Matthew thirteen, John seventeen, a lot of places that Satan is called the evil one, and it calls to mind his character and is constantly working towards stopping the gospel. He's active. Peter calls him a roaring lion who walks about seeking whom he may eat down is actually the word. But above the apostle, the apostle mentions evil, Poneros men. They're actively evil. They're actively mentioned because they are being used by the evil one himself. And so, the next clause says, for not all have faith. Here's the reason they're that way. The word faith has the definite article, the faith, but it could, and it can be understood as the faith, the objective body of truth. Not all people have come to the knowledge of the truth. And Jesus is the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. And then right after that in verse three says, but the Lord is faithful. So the contrast there puts the focus on the Lord that we can trust him. We can't trust people who are against him, but we can trust the Lord. Back up one phrase in verse two, he said, we pray, pray that we may be delivered. It's written in a way that could mean two things. It could be a particular instance that he's talking about. Maybe there's a situation going on right now that he's saying pray for me be delivered from this situation that I'm in. But probably it's it's an expression of there's always gonna be those who oppose the ministry. Pray that we be delivered from those uh, to, to protect us. Paul wrote many of his letters from prison And when he wrote to the Philippians, he asked for their prayers along with the help of Jesus Christ would deliver him. He put their prayers right up there with Jesus. Pray, I want your prayers and Jesus to deliver me. And when they prayed for imprisoned Christians, they didn't just say, Paul, let Paul have a good day in prison. (laughs) No, they prayed, God send an earthquake to release Paul and Silas. God sent an earthquake, and when they prayed for Peter, they didn't say, give Peter a good day in jail. No, they prayed, God send an angel and escort Peter right out of the jail in front of the jailers. We need to pray for those who are on the front lines, missionaries. They always ask, you ever noticed, you ever noticed every time we have somebody on the mission field speak, what do they always ask for? Prayer, always. The language here is clear that the wicked one is going to oppose God and everything that is holy. I want to thank you for praying for me. Thank you for praying for our leadership. Please, please do that. Please pray for Sundays when we come up here to proclaim the word. Please pray that people's hearts will be open. Please pray that nothing will distract. So the first thing Paul asked them to pray for is for the proclamation, pray for the leadership and specifically for the proclaiming of God's word and for protection. But then if you look down in verse three, an unshakable church not only prays for the leadership, but they're going to persevere in the Lord. Verse three says, but the Lord who is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. He focuses his attention to the Thessalonians and their faithfulness. But faithful, in fact, the way this is written, he said in verse two, for not all have the faith, but faithful is the Lord. That's the way it's written. We, we have it in the English, but the Lord is faithful. But it's really, faithful is first to emphasize and display a, a definite contrast. These people don't have the faith, but faithful is the Lord. The word faith Pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S. He's focusing on the, the unbelief of evil men. So the word faithful or trustworthy, it turns our attention to the Lord and his character. There are a lot of people who oppose the gospel, but the Lord is Faithful. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. As the apostle thinks of the Lord's character, he thinks also of the spiritual and emotional needs of the Thessalonians. That's why he says, but the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one or strengthen you and protect you. English Bibles typically translate this as a sort of an independent clause but the Greek text says it's a relative clause a relative clause dependent upon the but faithful is the Lord who will do this for you. He will protect you. Both faithful is the Lord who will strengthen and guard you It's written in such a way, I'm not going to bore you with all the Greek syntax, but the fact is, the, the verbs portray that which is true of the Lord at any time. He will protect you at any time. He will guard you. He will strengthen you. Now the word strengthen, or establish in verse three, means to set fast, to put in a certain position, to render it Settled and confirmed, and to stand immovable. One writer of verse put it this way Today, Lord, I have an unshakable conviction, a positive, resolute assurance that when you have spoken, it is unalterably true. But today, Lord, my sick body feels stronger and the stomping pain quietly subsides. Tomorrow and then tomorrow, if I must struggle again with aching exhaustion and twisting pain until I'm breathing, until I am utterly spent, until fear eclipses the last vestige of hope, then, Lord, then grant me the enabling grace to believe without feeling, to know, without seeing, to clasp your invisible hand and wait with invincible trust for the morning. And the word protect means to guard or to defend. It naturally suggests the presence of some form of danger. And that danger would be the evil one. We, if only we could see the invisible forces at work, we'd probably be Horrified. We probably have no, well we don't. We don't have any idea how many times God has protected us and we didn't even know it. (laughs) I have a feeling one of these days we're going to get to heaven there's going to be some beat up angels and they're going to say, man, are we glad you're finally here. (laughs) I don't know what they did for us but, but there's no telling how many ways that God has already protected us. You see, an unshakable, tru- an unshakable church is gonna persevere in the Lord. It's not dependent on who the pastor is, it perseveres in the Lord. It's not dependent on the style of worship, it perseveres in the Lord. We are gonna have different opinions. You put two Baptists in a room, you got three opinions. <laughs> but, but you persevere in the Lord. The Lord who is faithful will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And then verse four says an unshakable church participates in the truth and we have confidence in the Lord concerning you both that you do and will do the things we command you. Having mentioned the Lord's faithfulness in verse uh, three, Verse four, Paul expresses the confidence that they're going to do the things that the missionary team had commanded them and continue in the apostolic teaching. You're going to continue in the word of God as you've been taught what you have right now. You're going to stand on the truth in the Lord. But the key to that confidence is seen in the words, we have confidence in the Lord concerning you. We're confident in the Lord about you their confidence was rooted in him that they would participate in the truth folks a church a body, a church is a body of believers it's not this building after a while the church will go home to our to our respective homes building will still be here the church comes in when you come in but a church a group of people that does not stand for the truth is not a church. (laughs) It's just not. I guess I'm a pretty simple-minded man when it comes to the word of God because when when the word of God says it, it doesn't matter if you and I believe it, it's still settled. And it's the truth and we stand on the truth. I'm so thankful that this church participates in the truth. Teachers in Sunday school teach the truth. In fact, I, I, wanna, I wanna tell you, I, some of us have been here a long time. I'm not gonna point out any names or people, but, but some of us have been here a long time. I've been here almost 30 years. And we can take a lot for granted. But you, you want some exciting times, talk to new members because they come in with fresh eyes and they see things that you and I take for granted. I hear things like, we're so glad to be placed where they hold a high view of scripture. Amen. Where they lift up Jesus. Well, we just think everybody does that. <laughs> but evidently everybody doesn't do that. I'll never forget. Many years ago, one of the men—I love him—and he's in heaven. He was a great guy. He was in—you know—he came to me one time and he said, "Pastor, it was a particular subject. It wasn't—it wasn't a major doctrinal thing, but it had to do with some methodology." And he—and he said. Um, Pastor, you're teaching from the Word of God that we ought to do it this way, but we haven't been doing it that way. And I asked him, I said, Well, what do you want us to do? He said, Well, we need to do it like the Bible says, but I'm just telling you, we had never done it that way. (laughs) I wish he was still here. There's a fourth thing, and don't miss verse five. Now, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. An unshakable church that's going to stand in a community is going to keep on progressing in God's love and Christ's endurance. The verb, may the Lord direct your hearts. It means to make straight, to direct, to lead. Now believe it or not, there's a mood called an optative mood in the Greek which means a strong desire which they expressed in the Lord. If you look back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11, the same word is there, now may our God and Father himself Direct our way to you. In other words, Paul's saying, we've been run out of town, but we're hoping and we're praying, and our strong desire is that we come back to you. Same word is here. Now may the Lord direct your hearts, and Paul is using this that God might undoubtedly remove any obstacles opening the doors that they return in chapter uh, three of, of first Thessalonians but here he puts the word heart in there which implies the whole person may God direct your mind emotions and will your, it could be a simple pronoun here may God direct you he wants the Lord to lead them in the love of God and the endurance of Christ what in the world does that mean? Well, actually, that phrase, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God, could mean one of three things. And you know what? I believe it means all three of them. First, it it could mean that they might be led more deeply into their love for God. That would be an objective genitive. And the second thing is that they might be led to apprehend more and more the love of God has for them. That would be a subjective genitive. It's a genitive, we're just not sure exactly which one it is. And then there's the third meaning, that they might experience God's love for each other as God has loved them. For example, 1 John 4, 7 mentions that and that would be an attributive genitive, which y'all don't care about all that, but I think it means all three. That we would progress in the fact that God loves you and me and we love God more and that we love each other because God has loved us. So I, I believe he means all of it. And the same is true with the other phrase, but let's think about that for a moment. In the Bible, we, we see the word heart a lot. And that's more than that fist-sized blood pumps in the middle of your chest, beating your, in your chest. It is the control center of your life. Like mission control. NASA, when, when it was at its peak, the rockets were launched from Cape Canaveral. But where was mission control? In Texas, Houston. Because where all the smart people are, in Texas. <laughs> And that's why we remember those famous words from Apollo 13, Houston, we've got a problem. And they begin working on that. So the scientists at NASA sprang into action to find a solution that when we talk about inviting Jesus into our heart, we're basically saying, Jesus, I want you to take over the mission control of my life, all of it, my mind, emotions, my will. We come and we say, Jesus, I've got a problem. We can't fix this problem on our own. Only he can fix it for us. He can save us. In the first letter, chapter three, 1 Thessalonians chapter three, verse 12, he, he says, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you. And now he's saying, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. Which speaks of all the love that he has for us, the love that we have for him, and the love that we have for each other in the midst of it. But you know, we are still capable of not being very loving, aren't we? I read of a lady who was checking out at the grocery store, and as she opened her purse, pulled out her wallet, the cashier noticed she had a TV remote control in her purse. The cashier said, Do you always carry a remote control in your purse? And the lady said, No, but my husband refused to go shopping with me because there were three football games on, and I figured this was the meanest thing I could do. <laughs> you know, we're all capable of doing things like that. And so we're praying that God our love would grow more and more toward one another. A heart that's full of love does not ask, what is the meanest thing I can do? It always says, what's the kindest thing I can do? Your heart can overflow with God's love if it's filled to the brim with his love. Sometimes we can be used to intercede with, with two believers who seem to be estranged from one another. It doesn't mean we can always fix it, but we can still be kind and loving And pray that their hearts will overflow for one another again. But then he also says, may the Lord direct your hearts into the patience or perseverance, endurance of Christ. The the word endurance or patience or fortitude, it's a prayer that they might wait patiently for the coming of the Savior as the King James translates it. Or that they might have the kind of endurance that Christ gives, and endurance that comes from a relationship with Him, or that they might experience the kind of endurance that belongs to Christ and what's demonstrated by His suffering. I think it means all three of them. We need to pray for each other that we're going to persevere. I want to finish well. I do. I've had friends who have undone all the ministry that they spent their life doing by doing stupid things at the end. Perseverance carries the idea of endurance in the midst of trials. We keep on running the race even when you get tired and weary. And one way that we do that is to encourage one another and depend upon Jesus. Hebrews 12 says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author of and perfecter or finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You ever feel like quitting? Yeah. You ever get discouraged being a believer? Yeah, you do. God's marked out a race for us. You're in a race. You're not running my race and I'm not running your race, but God has a race marked out for us. And let me tell you something, it's not a hundred yard dash or a hundred meter dash as they say now. It's an ultra marathon. Christian life is not a sprint, it's a marathon. A marathon, I won't ever run a marathon, literally. 26.2 miles. Are you out of your mind? (laughs) Some folks can do it. More power to them. I wasn't built to run like that. I was built to run over people. (laughs) Not to run a long way. (laughs) But you keep on running the race that God's given you with endurance. I close with this quote from Oswald Chambers. In my Uh, in my utmost for his highest. Perseverance means more than endurance, more than simply holding on until the end. A saint's life is in the hands of God like a bow and arrow in the hands of an archer. God is aiming at something the saint cannot see. But our Lord continues to stretch and strain and every once in a while the saint says, I can't take it anymore. Yet God pays no attention. He goes on stretching until his purpose is in sight and then he lets the arrow fly. Entrust yourself to God's hands. Is there something in your life for which you need perseverance right now? Maintain your intimate relationship with Jesus Christ through the perseverance of faith. I pray that as long as Jesus tarries, no matter how difficult our society becomes, I pray there will always be a group of people known as South Crest Baptist Church who will remain unshakable. Following Jesus Christ and standing on his word. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for our time together. Would you help us to be people who persevere, who don't quit, who look to you, the author and finisher of our faith. I pray for anyone here tonight that might be discouraged. Lord, you let them know they're still in the race. To take one step at a time, one moment at a time, one day at a time, but Lord, keep them in the race. Help us to keep our eyes on you. And as we come together on Sunday, Lord, we pray that, that people will come in ready, their hearts open to worship you. And We pray that people will hear the gospel and follow you with their life. Thank you for this wonderful church. Thank you for those folks close to 60 years ago that saw a need for this church. Thank you for all of those who've gone before us. And Lord, may all those who come behind us look back and find us faithful, just as those before us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you folks for being here tonight. I look forward to seeing you again on Sunday. God bless you. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to watch more live streams or additional Bible studies, please go to southcrestlive.tv. We hope to see you again next week.